You're listening to a sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, Niagara. We believe in unapologetic preaching, unashamed adoration of Jesus, unceasing prayer, unafraid witness, and uncommon community. If you have yet to do so, we would love to have you join us for worship in God's Word on Sunday mornings. For more information, visit us online at harvestniagara.ca. Thanks for listening. Well, good morning. Welcome, Harvest Church family. Welcome, online guests. We are so excited once again to uh, be here with you and to look into God's Word and obviously to worship as we've just done, uh, but look in God's Word and see what God has for us today. So uh, grab your Bibles. Mark chapter 9 is where we're going to be. We're going to finish off uh, verses uh, 42 to the end, and uh, we want you to have your Bibles in front of you. So if you don't have your Bible in front of you, take some time right now. Just run to your house and get it and then come back and snuggle up on the couch. And if you have maybe an iPad or something, maybe uh, open that up, but get God's Word in front of you. If you don't have God's Word at home, please send me an email. You'll find my email on our website. I will make sure personally that we get you a copy of God's Word mailed to your house that you can then have it in front of you to learn from and seek God and know God. Uh, But this is why we gather every week to get into God's Word. We believe that God's Word is the primary book that we have been given to show us who God is, His character, His nature, and His ways, and how He interacts with His children throughout all of history. We believe God's Word shows us who we are clearly. We have such a distorted view of who we are sometimes. We see ourselves clearly through the Word of God and understand even how we got here and why we're here, the purpose for our lives. And we also see clearly in the Word of God that God has given us a book to lead and guide our lives, to show us the path of blessing and and righteousness that He's ordained for us, but also to show us the detriment of, of leaving that path and to warn us against the path of sin and the path of destruction. And so today, we're going to open up God's Word to Mark 9, and we're going to see this today predominantly. We're going to see that God is warning us through this text. Sometimes he encourages us, sometimes he warns us. This text is a warning for us to walk in the right path and to avoid the path that leads to destruction. And I know already, as I just use the word warning, some of you are getting all worked up inside. You're like, I don't like warnings. I don't like rules and things to do. This is a warning that is for your good. In fact, all warnings are for our good. Think of why people warn other people. Because we don't want them to touch something or do something that would cause them detriment. That's the same heart that God has in warning us about how to live our lives. Think about the good warnings you've had since you were a child. Don't touch the element. It'll burn you. Don't stick your finger in the light socket. Don't go on the roof. I had a friend of mine in my basement as we were doing renovations once. Don't put a screwdriver on this part of the electrical panel or you will die. I don't even take a screwdriver anywhere near that room anymore. I'm so afraid of dying. Why? Because warnings are for our good. They're for our benefit and our blessing. Think of the warning signs we have. Keep out. Beware of dog. Think of some of these signs that we see all around us that that remind us that, hey, there's danger in the area. And some of the things that we see on on the signs, there's explosives, there's flammables, there's gas under pressure, there's corrosive. This could be toxic. We get the point, right? We get the point. Warnings are for our good. And this morning as we open up the scriptures, we see God warning us against the one thing that can truly kill us, not just in this life, but forever in eternity, the warning against the, the reality of of dabbling or touching or getting too close to or enjoying the reality of sin. And so it's going to be a straight shooter this morning, but it's for our good. And I pray that we'll all dive into this with a desire to see God, understand our propensities to sin, but then we turn away from that sin and choose God's path of righteousness and blessing, which brings him joy, brings our soul's full benefit of 
God's commands and leads us on the path of righteousness. So let me read this for you, and then let me pray, and then we're just going to dive right in today. Mark chapter 9, the little subtitle says, Temptations to Sin, starting at verse 42. Here's what God's Word says. This is God's Word for us this morning. Whoever then causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin... It'd be better for him to take a great millstone, hang it around his neck, and throw himself into the sea, or, and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter the life crippled than to, with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter the, the life lame than with two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Yet salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. This is the word of the Lord. Let me stop right now and just pray. God, help us this morning. Understand the reality of your good plan you have for our lives. Help us, God, understand the detriment of sin. And God, I pray this morning that your Holy Spirit would speak to us, that would prick our hearts, that would stop us from walking into sin and cause us to walk into righteousness. God, use this text in our lives for the glory of Jesus Christ and to refine us and renew us in the path of Jesus. Help us now, God, we pray. This is a spiritual exercise. We can't do this on our own. We desperately need you. Help us, God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I encourage you to take notes this morning as I preach. Uh, let me start with this. Number one, four points today. Number one, be warned. Leading others away from Jesus has devastating consequences. Be warned. Leading others away from Jesus has devastating consequences. We're really just picking up our series on follow Jesus. What's it really mean to follow Jesus and be a disciple of Jesus Christ? We've learned already in this short series in the book of Mark that, that starts with denying yourself and taking up your cross and following Jesus. It leads to desiring to see and behold the wonder of Jesus. Then it leads to a life of faith and, and a life of striving to be great, but not in the world's greatness, but in God's greatness of being less than and serving everybody. And now it should, God's word shows us that actually following Jesus is a path to radical obedience obedience in Jesus Christ. Here's the truth, brothers and sisters. Following Jesus is not just a prayer we say. It's actually a whole mindset and a whole heart change that changes to gravitate to what God wants and not what we want. It's a, a desire for holiness and a gag reflux to sin. And so we see in this text right away, we see the progression of this passage uh, of, of understanding that, hey, following Jesus is is making sure that we point other people to Jesus and point them away from sin. It's ensuring that we also don't entangle our own hearts in sin. But it's this desire, this earnest desire, and this drive to whatever it takes at all costs, avoid sin in our lives. We see it right here starting in verse 42. It says this. It says, uh, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, whoever, well, who does that mean? It means whoever, any of us. It's, it's a broad term to make sure that it, this is not describing someone that is not you today. If you are somebody, this is for you. This is a whoever. You are one of the whoever's. It's anyone. It's everyone. 
be aware of this. If you cause one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it'd be better for you that a millstone be hung around your neck and you're tossed into the sea. Remember, we talked about little ones last week. It's playing off earlier in the passage where he says, hey, if you're going to be the greatest of these, welcome one of these little ones, the least of these. And again, same reference to little ones, children. But we know children represent the vulnerable, the, the weak, the, the, the lowly of society, those who maybe need an influence. And if you, they need an influence and you're that influence, make sure you're influencing them in the right direction because if you don't, there's going to be some significant consequences. Children are the immature believers, the average Joseph society, really anyone who needs someone to lead them in the proper way. Anytime you get to this place where you're minimizing sin and joking about sin or even throwing sin aside and encouraging those who are looking to you, for example, to do whatever they want, be careful because it says here, it says here very clearly, it'd be better for you if a great millstone are hung around your neck and you're thrown into the sea. Now that's drastic, don't you think? You read that, and I hope you don't just gloss over that. I hope you stop and be like, wow, that's a significant reality. Think about dying in that way. There used to be a series on TV called A Thousand Ways to Die where it talk about, you talk about all the horrible and obscure ways to go. Of all the horrible and obscure ways to go, this would be a great episode of that show. In fact, one of my wife's greatest fears is that we go off a side of a road into a pond in a car, and that's how we end up coming to our end, a horrible way to die. But in fact, this was actually a way that they, people did die in that day. Um, back in, maybe past Jesus' day, but in church history, people who believed in believer's baptism, the people who didn't believe in that would hogtie them and throw them in the river and be like, you believe in believer's baptism? There you go. Actually, the people that Jesus was talking to here uh, would understand that one of the early form of Roman punishment in Galilee was that some of the leaders would tie up some of the early leaders and throw them into the lake. It'd be better off for you to go that way, Jesus is saying, than to cause somebody vulnerable, weak or young in their faith, to stray from their faith. Right away, you've got to stop and say, really, really, what gives? Like, this is intense, what gives? Earlier we saw last week that just giving a little small cup of water was going to be great reward. Now giving, now giving a kind of small thing in some people's eyes, causing someone to sin. It's a major punishment. Like, what is going on? Here's what's going on in this text right away. God is just simply trying to show us the reality of the devastating truth of sin in not just our lives, but other people's lives. It's really a passage about sin. Look how many times it says it in here, circle sin. Every time it says sin, circle it. It's all over the text. God's showing us the massive reality of how he looks at sin, how a holy God looks at sin, and how we ought to consider sin in our lives, the lives of others. So often we try and define sin, right? We say, define sin as, ah, oh, just a mistake I made, and everybody makes mistakes, so it's not that big a deal. I'm okay with sin. You got to be okay with sin. You make mistakes too. Or sometimes we define sin as simply missing the mark. Well, of course I missed the mark. No one's perfect and never shot an arrow straight before, and Again, everyone's in that boat, so you sin, I sin, we all sin. What's the big deal? Or sometimes we look at sin as, well, sin's just moving a little bit away from God, and God's solid, and He's here, and if I sin, I'm just kind of inching a little bit away from God, and so it's not that big a deal, as long as I can still see God, and He still loves me, and all that truth. And I think sometimes we minimize sin too much. That's why this hyperbole is here. It's, it's talking about sin in a magnificent way. 
so that we will get it. And that's just the truth of what God wants us to see today is that sin is nothing to mess with. We might define sin as minimal, but here's how God defines sin. He defines sin as this, as a transgression against the law of God. In other words, anytime you choose willfully or unknowingly to move away from God's law, you are breaking a commandment of God, no matter how small it seems to you, it's a big deal to God. Second part of how God defines sin is not just a transgression against his law, but rebellion against him. To sin is to rebel against a morally true and right God. Now, it's one thing to do that in your own heart, but it's a whole other ballgame to cause somebody else to break a law of God or rebel against God. Let's just stop here and think about this for a minute. Any of you especially who have influence over somebody else, which is absolutely all of us, but let's think about this, parents. Oh my goodness, the responsibility is big. Let's think of this, grandparents or teachers or pastors. Let's think about this, Christian in the workplace or Christian at school. We have a significant responsibility to ensure that we're pointing people to Jesus and away from sin in this life. In the words we speak, you know, those little jokes that we think are funny that actually lead away from Jesus rather than to Jesus or encouraging that person to like, you know, people need to hear this dirt you have on somebody else and you're leading other people to sin. Like, think twice about that. Better that you have a millstone around your neck tossed in the sea. We don't understand millstone, but here's what millstone is. It's that big stone that donkeys would use to crush grain or weed and put that thing around your neck and toss you into the sea. Be careful the things that you speak about. Be careful the motives that you encourage. Well, they haven't been really nice to you. You should get back at them. You should get back at them. It's okay to be angry. It's okay to be jealous. It's okay to have a little bit of stuff going on in your heart. Be careful with that. It may seem natural and normal to you, but not to God. What about the life choices we encourage or don't encourage? Well, we know we're supposed to be pure, but, you know, you can stray from that a little bit. Everyone does. Get a little bit of satisfaction. Just don't cross this line, really. Think that's how God sees it? You know, taxes are just passed, and I encourage you not cheat in a big way, but a little shortcuts, that's okay. Like, government's loaded anyways. God takes sin seriously. We ought to, too. Not just in our own hearts, but in how we encourage others around us. And I know you might be asking, well, I have enough to worry about right here. Why worry about others? Because Romans chapter 14 tells us that we ought to be careful. We don't cause others to sin or stumble. Others to fall flat on their face. Others to trip and fall in a pothole. Others to stray from God. We're going to be held accountable before God for how we not just live our lives, but how we influence other people towards God. Let's stop and consider this right now in your relationships. Are you leading others to Jesus? Or are you leading them to sin in our homes, in our social circles, even in Christian social circles? It's easy, right? Well, we're all Christians, so we can let the guard down a little bit, can we? Can we? In workplaces, in the church, are we fearing God or are we fearing people in our lives? Clearly from this first few verses here, God cares about our attitudes towards sin, which affect others. How are you thinking about sin these days? 
Eh, not a big deal. Careful. God's warning us that, could be, that will be detrimental to your spiritual health and might ultimately lead to your death. These here are for our good, so we don't go on that path. But it's not even just about others. It's not about others. It starts in our own hearts. And that's where the rest of this text goes. Really, it goes to uh, the call for us to be vigilant, to keep our own life free from sin. It's a call to keep our own life, vigilantly keep our own life free from sin. This is part of God's mandate for us. In contrast to verse 42, which talks about worrying about how other people are living. And again, we're not being policemen here. We're not now being policemen and trying to make sure that we know everything everyone's doing and we're morally looking after people's lives. No, we're, we're talking about how we influence people in natural everyday living. But more importantly than that is showing us how we need to care about that first and foremost in our own hearts. In our own hearts. Notice this, the choices we make become a matter of which direction we're actually facing in this life. Are we aiming for God's kingdom? Are we aiming for God's kingdom? Or are we aiming for an eternity apart from God in a place called hell? Are we on the narrow path that leads to heaven? That leads to life? Or are we on the narrow path that leads to destruction? It's more than just a matter of what we say we believe. It's more than just a matter of a prayer we say. It's actually the way we live our lives before God. I really want to summarize the next few verses here as I read them. It's this, God calling us, avoid sin at all costs. Some of us are taking sin a little too flippantly these days. Avoid sin at all costs. Look what it says. Verse 43. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than two feet be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Simple message. Don't dabble in sin. Don't pretend sin's not a big deal. Do whatever it takes to avoid sin. What's he talking about here? He's talking about the totality of your life. That's the hand, the foot, the eye. So totality of your life. If your hand causes you to sin, if you find your hand touching things you shouldn't be touching, the things you do, contrary to God, like do whatever it takes to, to, get, to cut it off, like to cut that sin off. If you find your hand touching things you have no business touching or gravitating to things you know you shouldn't be near, stop it in his tracks foot, the places you go, if you find your feet taking you to places where you know you're going to willfully walk into sin or put yourself in scenarios you know aren't pleasing to God, well, it's better off you don't have feet than you miss eternity with Jesus. Take care of it. Or your eyes, what are your eyes? Your eyes are really the window to your whole being, your whole soul. Your eyes are the window to your mind, which is a control unit to your emotions, which is to your will. That's the heart, the mind, the emotions, and the will. If your eyes leading you to lust after things that God doesn't call us to lust after, well, it leads you to long after things that are going to create discontentment and take away the longing for Jesus, well, better off you don't have eyes and you miss Jesus and miss eternity with Him. Whatever caused you to sin, I love the word behind cause you to sin, is scandalize. Whatever scandalizes your heart, Whatever creates little soap operas in your heart of cheating on God and not glorifying God, take care of that right now. 
even right now on your couch, understand the seriousness of your sin and deal with it. Obviously, this passage isn't to be taken literally. Don't cut off your hands and cut off your feet and gouge your eyes. If this was to be taken literally, where would we all be? We'd all be in line for prosthetics, and we'd all be in wheelchairs that no one could push because everybody's in the same boat. But don't dismiss it because it's hyperbole showing us like God takes it seriously. It's don't dismiss it, but don't ignore it either. Oh, just great language that God's using to get our attention and doesn't really mean it. No, he means it. Don't, don't minimize this either. This is meant to rock us to the core, to get our attention. Sometimes God says things in drastic ways to show us the immensity of what he's trying to teach us. Sort of like a parent. Sometimes a parent gets frustrated. If you don't clean up your toys, you're going to throw them all out. Now you've got your kids' attention, right? But that's just an idle threat. God's using great language, but it's not an idle threat. This is the reality of what comes from us, those of us who choose to ignore God's mandate to pursue righteousness and turn away from sin. Really what he's saying here is, hey, if there's sin in your life, deal with it now. It's like if you're to look in the mirror and you see a little spot on your shoulder of skin cancer, what do you do with that? You get on your phone, even in COVID-19, you're not afraid of hospitals anymore, right? You get to the doctor, you get a surgeon to cut that thing out as soon as possible because it will kill you. Or you find a tumor, you find a little lump, and you're like, oh my goodness, got to get this checked out. Don't let this linger. Left alone, it will kill you. Or your kids come from inside, they got a tick on your, on, oh, what a cute little tick, let's make it a pet. You don't do that. You get that tick and you do whatever it takes to get that tick out. You know it can have detrimental effects. Here's the reality. Sin is cancer. Sin is the tick. And the master surgeon, Jesus Christ, is the only one who can cut it out. And what God is saying, when you have those things in your life, take it to Jesus that he would cut it out immediately. This is the truth of the gospel. A holy God has nothing in common with sin. He can't tolerate sin. Sin, he is light. Sin is darkness. Light obliterates the darkness. In fact, get this, why did God send his son Jesus to this earth? To take care of the sin issue that we have that we can't take care of on our own. That's the gospel. Jesus came to take the punishment of sin on the cross, to die for our sin because of our sin in light of our sin to take the punishment we deserve because of our sin and to provide a bridge for us to a holy God who is morally right and absolutely pure and 100% perfect and because of that can have nothing to do with sin. And Jesus is the only one that can take care of our sin problem through faith and repentance and asking him, God, come and cut the sin out of my heart right now. Why did God send Jesus? Because he knew that if we were to live in our sin, we would be destined to an eternity apart from him. And even in this, we have choices to make. Are we going to give our allegiance to Jesus? Or are we going to align with sin and, and the plan that Satan has for our lives? Are we going to give ourselves to the plan of God or the plan of Satan? Romans 8, 13, if you live according to the flesh, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live through Jesus Christ. Galatians 5, 19, now the works of the flesh are evident. 
This is the sin that God wants to get at in our lives today. This is what he's warning us about. Sexual immorality. Impurity. Sensuality. Idolatry. Putting anything before God. Sorcery. Enmity. The, the, the stuff that drives within us. The, the envy and enmity and the, the, the barriers to relations with other people that come in. Strife and jealousy and fits of anger and rivalries and dissensions and divisions and envy and drunkenness and orgies and things like these. I warn you, he says in Galatians 5. Remember the warning? It's for our good. I warn you. As I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. It's okay if you're being convicted right now. Oh my goodness, that's how I live my week. But it's for our good, because God sees us walking on paths. Every one of us is hitting something in that passage. God's reminding us, don't walk down that path any further. It's killing you inside. It's killing your relationship with God. It'll ultimately kill you and send you to an eternity apart from God, because there'll be evidence that there's no Jesus in there. Because Jesus convicts us of our sin, and he purifies us of our sin. And the Holy Spirit helps us walk in righteousness. Remember that little song we used to sing when we were kids? Be careful, little eyes, what you see. Be careful, little ears, what you hear. Be careful, little hands, what you do. Be careful, little feet, where you go. Be careful, little heart, who you trust. Be careful, little mind, what you think. Because there's a Father up above who's looking down in love. Oh, be careful. Little life where you go. Not because there's an angry judge up there. He is the judge. But there's a father up above who's looking down in love. And he's beckoning you, to, beckoning you to Jesus. He's beckoning you to the right path. He's beckoning you to fight your sin. This is part of being a Christian. It's hard. It's a battle. Me too. I'm with you. Every day, God, why do I still have my sin? Part of fighting our sin shows God that we love him and embrace his son and want to walk in his path for our lives. God's calling our lives today through his taxes to fight sin. It's to fight sin. How do we fight sin? Well, it starts with an attitude of the heart. It's a heart issue first and foremost. Ezekiel chapter 36, 26, God tells us that when we accept Jesus Christ, he's given us a new heart. He takes out our heart of stone, a heart that's antagonistic towards God, a heart that loves sin. He gives us a heart of flesh, a heart that, that, that loves righteousness and beats with Jesus' heart. And as we walk with Jesus, here's what happens. We grow to hate our sin and love righteousness. That ought to be the natural result of being a Christian. We develop a gag reflux towards sin, and, and if we will continue to walk in sin, we simply can't possibly say all is well with Jesus. Hating sin, in fact, is evidence that Christ and the Holy Spirit are living within us. So it's a heart issue. You love your sin, even right now, say, God, change my heart. If you live within me, change my heart. It's not just a thing we do. It's an attitude of the heart that God came to exchange, heart of stone for heart of flesh. And he wants to change your heart even right now to your attitude towards sin. Here's what else it is. It's an authentication of being a Christ follower. John chapter 14, verse 15, your desire to actually fight your sin shows that you are an authentic Christ follower. If you love me, you'll keep my commands, and you'll uh, stray from the ways of the world, the ways of the enemy, and you'll keep my commands. Your desire and love for God is, is actually shown by the way that you live your life in keeping his commands. 
fighting sin as a necessity for believers is actually even actualized by the word of God. You wonder how you fight your sin? How do you keep your way pure? I'm glad you asked. Psalm 119, verses 9 to 16. How can a young man or woman or old man or old woman keep their way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Here's how we ultimately fight sin in our lives. It's through the word of God. This isn't just a book that sits on our shelf six days a week. We pick it up for Sunday morning. This is actually our defense against sin. It enlightens us to sin. It purifies our minds and purifies our hearts. And and it cleanses us and prepares us to fight the battles that are going to come that day in our lives. The word of God is paramount in this. Here's what else is paramount. It's prayer. Prayer is paramount. We can't fight sin without prayer. Repentance and renewal and refocus. And One of our prayers every day ought to be, God, help me fight my sin. Take away the sin that's in my heart. It's not just praying for safety and comfort and for grandma and grandpa and all those things. That's part of it. But it's, God, cleanse my heart anew. It's also this by keeping accountable with others. Christian faith isn't just a me and God thing. It's also I need other people. It's, it's I have blind spots. You have blind spots. We need people to show those to us. We need people to pray for us. We need people to encourage us and strengthen us with scripture and even walk with us on this journey that they keep us, sometimes to pull us from sin. Sometimes we pull them from sin. We need accountability in our lives. Read this over again this afternoon and you'll see again, I'm sure, Sin is a big deal to God. And yet God has given us every avenue of fighting it through Jesus Christ, through his death and resurrection, not just to to overcome sin, but to walk in righteousness. He's given us his word. He's given us prayer. He's given us other people. Brothers and sisters, this is what sets Christians apart from everybody else in the world. Yes, it's, it's who we worship. Yes, it's who we put our faith in, but it's also transformed lives by the glory of the gospel. God's empowered us to do this. Our job is now just embrace Jesus and say, God, I will, by faith, by your strength, and live a life of righteousness. So important for your life. It's a life or deather. I'm not just preaching a little sermon today, man. I'm preaching a life and death sermon for you today. I have maybe a little urgency in my voice today because I realize that, man, your life depends on whether you accept this or reject this. How do I know this? Because look what's in the text here. Here's the third point. Be aware. Judgment, heaven, and hell are for real. Be aware. Your attitude towards sin is either taking you to heaven or is taking you to hell. Notice it talks about our consequences of our choices. Three times it says in this text, it is better for you to enter life. What's life? Life is the kingdom of God. It's, it's not this life, it's the next life. That's the life he's talking about. And if you don't, you're going to enter into hell. Hell is said three times in this passage. Heaven is life. Heaven is the kingdom of God. Hell is hell in this passage. It's implying here in this text that there's going to be a final judgment one day for every believer. Implying in this text what we see in other parts of the Bible that are clear and obvious. 
One day we're going to stand before God. We're going to give account for our lives. Not just what we do with Jesus. That's the first question. But what we, how we live our lives in light of Jesus. Matthew chapter 25 tells us so clearly. So clearly. The day we die, there's going to be a great big lineup at the gates of heaven. And Jesus is going to be there. God's going to be there on the throne with Jesus. At the right hand, he's going to be judging those that come. And as you come, the first question he's going to ask you is, do you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Did you, did you repent and put your faith in Jesus Christ? Those who answer yes are going to be put on the right-hand side where the sheep go. Those who answer no are going to go on the left side where the goats go. The right side is aligned towards heaven. The left side is aligned towards hell. There's no in-between. There's no like, well, give me a second chance here now. Like that, that's just the reality of what we face. That's why we have decisions to make here on earth. But the reality of being on the right side isn't just like, a, yeah, I gave Jesus a token nod back when I was five at summer camp. It's, it's, did you know Jesus? Did you put your faith in Jesus Christ? Yes. Well, how do you know that? Because of the way I live my life, because of the, the transformed life I live by the power of Jesus Christ. That's all part and partial to the, did you know Jesus? Your belief and your actions cannot be separated. They're married together. The two shall become one flesh. Your belief and your actions are like Siamese twins joined at the hip. They're not separated. And so the sheep, true belief is in the heart as evidenced by the life that they lived. Reality is, those two lines, as demonstrated by this text, Prove either know God or you don't know God. And you can't fool them when you get there. It is just showing us the reality that there is a heaven awaiting for all of those who put their faith in Jesus and live this transformed life, avoiding sin by His grace and walking in righteousness. Heaven is a real, literal place. It's, earth is just the waiting room or the, the foyer to, to get in the grand theater where Jesus is center stage. This is just a warm-up for the real life that's to come. That's why it's called life. The real life really comes. The life we're designed for, free of all the sin, comes in heaven. The place where God's kingdom is actually fully realized, where Jesus is the king and his people are the servants and he is on the eternal throne and nothing can topple him. He's reigning in all of his glory and this is going to be the greatest day of our collective lives when we finally see Jesus and know the fullness of his plan for our life in eternal glory. Heaven is, great description of heaven and revelation, but heaven is simply this. Heaven is the greatest day of your life times one trillion living in perfection with Jesus. Greatest day of my life thus far. Clearly my wedding day. Apart from being born again, it's my wedding day. What an amazing day. I can still remember it like, like yesterday, September 25th, 1999. And there we were in this beautiful fall day. Sun was shining. I can still kind of smell the smells. And it was, it was a beautiful, it was a perfect day, but it, yeah, it wasn't perfect. There were still some awkward wedding guests. There's still some things that didn't go right. I still ended up dumping soup on my wife's beautiful wedding gown at our reception. Oh, yeah, not just a little bit of soup. Like, dump the whole thing. Heaven? All those little things that went wrong, it's never going to go wrong. Every day is a new day. Every day is going to be a bright and sunny day because Jesus' presence is lighting it up. Every day there's going to be, be newness of life. The, the fruit is always fresh. Nothing goes backwards. Nothing goes wrong. That is heaven. Fellowship with Jesus, everything you long for. And let's be honest, what the pastor is trying to teach us is that anything you sacrifice here on earth is going to be worth it when you get to heaven. Because fighting sin is hard. 
And it's a battle. But this text is reminding us that life and the kingdom is coming. And so in other words, we live for that day and not this day. We live for what's to come more than what's here right now. And so we easy to put the sin aside and focus on righteousness. And when you get there that day, guess what? It's going to be worth the fight. It's going to be worth all the surgeries you endure to get the sin out. It's going to be worth it all because then your life is finally actualized in what God intended you to be and do. You're going to be perfect in the presence of your Savior. How awesome is that? But the flip side of that is hell. And that's actually more prominent in this passage than heaven. Life, life, kingdom of God. But hell is actually more prominent than heaven. There's, there's quite a few descriptions of hell in this text right here for sure. Look what it says here three times. It says this. Go to hell to the unquenchable fire. To be thrown into hell. To be thrown into hell where the worm does not uh, die and the fire is not quenched. Three times it's talking the opposite of a literal place of bliss and glory. The literal place of torment and darkness and destruction. When the Bible talks about hell, it's actually talking about the place, Gehenna is the actual word. It's, it's used 12 times, three times here, 12 times in the New Testament. It's talking about a punishment of fire. Do you notice in this text, as you look at this, there's no verses 44 and 46. Did you find that odd? Yeah, I did as well. There's no 44 and 46. Why is that? It's because really they're the exact same as what it says in verse 48, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. So some manuscripts have 46 and uh, what are the two verses? 44 and 46 in there, but it's really a repeat of 48. So honestly, in the, some manuscripts, this is even more intense about hell. It's saying every time where there's unquenchable fire and the, the worm does not die and the fire does not stop. I wonder why they left it out. It's kind of saying it three times would get, give me the greater picture. Wouldn't it give you that greater picture? It's talking about Gehenna. It's talking about a little valley in Jerusalem called the Valley of Hinnom. Historically, it's been an ugly place, a dark place, a place of destruction. Uh, back in early days, child sacrifice of Moloch happened there. Back in Isaiah 33 and 37, 185,000 Assyrian troops that were killed were burned there by King Hezekiah. Can you imagine that picture? In the later days, the Valley of Hemen was uh, relegated to the dump, so everyone from Jerusalem would bring all their dump down there, and you know what a dump smells like, all their garbage, and there's worms crawling out of it. They'd be burned. They'd try and burn the garbage. There'd be little burn piles. It was always burning. This haze, this stench, even bodies sometimes of the people who didn't, couldn't afford a grave were thrown down there. Can you imagine that picture? This, this gross, disgusting stench with flames coming from different places, and the haze in the air. You could barely see. That's a picture of the literal place called hell. Worm, talking about the internal torment that lasts forever. Fire, talking about the external torment that never goes out. This is like your worst day times a trillion. You know those days you're like, when is this going to end? You know night's coming. But this is like one of those, when is this going to end? You know what's going to end? Never. When is there going to be reprieve? There's not. What's tomorrow going to be like? The same as today. Second verse, same as the first. Hell is where there's everything void of God and his goodness, but it's a presence of everything full of Satan and his evil. And here's the truth. If you don't care about sin, this is where you will end up. I'm not saying it's to judge you. I'm saying it's to plead with you to see what it's like, to plead with you to accept Jesus, that no one would ever go there. That's not God's wish. That's not my wish. 
but it's your choice. Oh, would you see the devastation of sin and the glory of Jesus today? I want you to notice this in this text that Jesus isn't talking about here. He's not talking about to sinners. He's talking about to the disciples and other believers, probably the religious of the day. One commentator points out that Jesus often talks about heaven to the unbeliever and hell to the believer. Regardless, he talks about both. So we know the glory, but we'd also know the other side of the equation, the devastation. Then you get to Mark 9, 49. This is an odd verse. It's only found in Mark. In this, in this passage, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John kind of all have some of the similar stories, but in, only found in Mark, for everyone will be salted with fire. And so that's uh, a little confusing. What's this mean? Uh, the best way I can come up with an explanation for this for you is this is what it means. Um, Everyone salted with fire is a time and manner appropriate for the relationship with God. Everyone's going to go through fire in one way. For non-believers, it's the preserving fire of final judgment. That's the fire that you face for non-believers. For believers, this is maybe talking about um, the refining fire of present trials and suffering and, and, and maybe even the refining fire of fighting your own sin, which is difficult in and of itself. First uh, Corinthians 3 talks about the beam of seed judgment where all, all our works are going to be tested with fire to see what was truly of God and what was of us. Or it's talking about the, the, the fact of refining ourselves with fire, purifying ourselves now that we would not have to come under jo- God's judgment later. As hard as it is now, putting salt in the wound almost, this is what God is calling us to, to purify our hearts now that we won't have to be put to the lake of fire forever. It might feel like fire now, but it's nothing compared to the lake of fire. Point well taken. We just got to stop and consider this full reality of this passage. Love sin? How's the destination? Hate sin by the grace of God, by the power of God? Heaven is your final resting spot where you live forever. Don't miss it. I hope you're still with me. Don't miss it. Don't miss it today. Your sin might feel good right now. Might have a temporary joy and fulfillment. It leaves you empty and lost forever. Sin might be so hard to fight right now, but it's worth the fight. Where will you spend forever after this life is over? This life is so short, just a few short years. Then we, then we all head into eternity. Where are you going to spend your eternity? I pray that we'd heed the warning of Jesus, we'd uh, avoid the sin in hell, and we would pursue righteousness in heaven, starting today, right now. Say this prayer with me, all of us. God, I want you and your path. Help me, Lord. Take the sin away. Give me righteousness. All of us, we want to be with Jesus forever. Got to finish this off, the last verse quickly. Here's the last point. Be proactive. Being an influencer for Christ is his desire for your life. Be proactive. Being an influencer for Christ is his desire for your life. See here in this text, it's not just about not sinning. It's about being proactive to influence others in a positive way. It starts with, hey, don't cause anyone to sin. Then it ends with, hey, be salt in this world. Salt is actually a good thing. Look what it says here. 
Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Salt's actually a good thing. Back in Jesus' day, they didn't have refrigerators, so what they did is they put salt as a preservative. Salt would preserve their food. Salt, as we know, brings out the taste of things and brings out the flavor. But salt was of great commercial value. They would commercial value. So it was, it was a valuable commodity in Jesus' day. In fact, most of the salt came from around the Dead Sea where it's so full of salt that you actually float without a, without a flotation device. Had the opportunity to do that a few years ago. Really weird, but it's cool at the same time. But the reality is salt, too, can lose its saltiness. And sometimes salt deteriorates to leave a savorless salt like crystals as residue. And so what it's saying is make sure that you have salt. Make sure that you have the Word of God in you. Make sure that you are actually living by the Spirit of God, that you can then preserve truth in this world and and add the flavor of Christ to this world in a way that's going to influence people towards Jesus Christ. This is the call on us as believers. Not just avoid sending influencing people the wrong direction, not just avoiding sin, but then living in righteousness so that people can see the difference Jesus makes, and actually we then ourselves become a preservative of Christ, uh, uh, the flavor of Christ in this world for the glory of Jesus Christ. This is God's design for our lives, to grab truth and stand for it and actually live truth that others would see, man, that person is different. It must be the truth that they adhere to by the power of Jesus Christ. It's our job to promote righteousness. Now you do what I do, I do what I do. No, it's our job to promote righteousness and help everyone know Jesus' path and Jesus' way. It's God's plan for us to pursue Jesus 100% with our lives wholeheartedly, and it's our God's plan for us to point people to Jesus any way we know how. You know what's the greatest way we do this? Yes, it's the message that we speak, but it's more importantly the message that we deliver through the way we live our lives. These preachers that preach, these Christians that live and think that it's just a... I love Jesus and nothing else matters. That's so opposite of what this passage tells us. The gospel changes us and actually the light of Jesus then comes alive in us and we live our lives so the world can see that the light of Jesus is alive and well in this place. Matthew 5, 14, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand that gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they might see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is our mandate. The reality of a saved life is the light of Jesus is in us. We're to take the shade off and let everyone see by our words, by our actions, by our attitudes, Jesus' life alive in us, that the world will see the light of Jesus. Avoiding sin and pursuing righteousness. It's not simply about a creed we adhere to or uh, listening to the right preachers or worshiping to the right tunes is about living a life empowered by the Holy Spirit overcoming sin and showing others Jesus through everything that we are this is Jesus calling us this is what it means to truly be a follower of Jesus warning and the blessing take heed the warning and the blessing take heed I know we don't often hear messages on sin. That's why we preach verse by verse so we can't skip these. Will you heed the warning? Will you see the blessing? Some of you right now might be stuck in your sin like a pig in mud. You're loving it. You're eating it up. You're rolling it. You're playing it. You don't care. You need rescue. 
You need rescue, and you can't rescue yourselves. The more you try and wiggle out, it's like quicksand. The deeper you sink, there's only one person that can rescue is Jesus Christ. In this passage, he's holding out his hand saying, take my hand, I want to rescue you from your sin. I want to spend eternity with you. Will you take his hand today? Some of you, some of you are sitting on the fence. And I've said it often in our church, that fence hurts because you ever try to straddle a fence and sit on a fence? Generally, you don't sit on a fence this way when it's talking about sitting on a fence. You sit on a fence this way, and that just kills, and you can't get off that fence apart from Jesus. Jesus wants to pull you on his side today. He wants to release you of the pain of sitting on the fence, and he wants to uh, release you to live a life of righteousness in him that where the fullness of joy comes. Will you today forsake the world and get both feet on Jesus' side? Some of us are already on Jesus' side, and we're, we're loving the green pastures he's put us in, and the pastures of righteousness. I just encourage you to stay there and play there. Don't look over the fence and see grass greener. The grass isn't greener on this side. Just keep going after Jesus. He is over you. He is protecting you, watching over you. He has designed your life to live there, and he'll provide for you everything you need for all of your joy and all of your satisfaction and everything your soul longs for. It's on Jesus' side. For all of us, very simple. One sentence. To follow Jesus means a radical obedience that forsakes sin and pursues righteousness. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you, Lord, for some of these hard passages that bring us face-to-face with the reality of who you are, a holy God. It brings us face-to-face with the reality of who we are, sinners who love sin. God, I pray today simply this, that you'd cause us all to see Jesus so clearly. God, would we surrender to Jesus yet again? Would we, would we ask you again, God, to purify our hearts and purify our minds and make us whole in Jesus Christ? God, would we be a people, would we be a people who are influencing others for Jesus Christ by the ways that we live? Would we not influence them negatively but positively? Would we in our own hearts have hearts that are purified for you? And God, would you take our lives and let them be fully yielded to you? that we might know the power of the resurrection in our lives right now, that we might know the power of the resurrection when we finally enter into your kingdom and spend eternity with you forever. God, may every person that's listening to this sermon right now choose heaven over hell, choose righteousness over sin, choose Jesus over the enemy and ourselves and our world. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.